Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. As we near the two year mark of Russia's intensified invasion of Ukraine, this week's episode from the archive features Ed Luce, Rosa Brooks, Corey Shockey, and David Rothkopf in March 2022 as they discuss the war at the one month mark. Please enjoy. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. I'm coming to you from New York City. And coming to you from Washington, D.C., we have... Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, thanks, David. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey? I am exceedingly well because it's almost baseball season, David. Almost very, very close to baseball season. And of course, that's a highlight every year for Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? <laughs> Tip top condition, thank you. Tip top. What are you looking forward to from the American baseball season, Ed? I'm looking forward to the uh, the, the DC team doing well, something like. That. <laughs> <laughs> How to say I'm English without saying I'm English? I think uh, alert DSR listeners might have picked that up already. That, that you're English? Yes. No. No. That's true. They're very very perceptive crowd. And they expect your perceptiveness to help them figure out what's going on in Ukraine. Because, you know, Corey, I like sit there and I follow Twitter. You know, it's like the old days when Trump was president, because 
you know, something was going to happen every few minutes. And so I'm watching Ukraine-related Twitter, and it goes kind of like this. Russia is pulling back dramatically from its offensive around Kyiv. And then the Ukrainians say, no, they're not. This is Russian lying, and they're just trying to bait us into pulling back. And then people say there's progress on negotiations. And then other people say, no, there's not progress on negotiations. And, you know, they could be confused, but you probably know what's really happening, Corey. So what's like really happening? All of those things are really (laughs) happening. This is what Clausewitz calls the fog of war. It's really hard to tell what's happening. And what you also see is... Um, if if so, Clausewitz so, had only had Twitter. No, he, he would have been terrible. Have you ever tried to read Clausewitz's On War? It It's so turgid and Germanic and almost unendurable. I shudder to think what it might have been like before his wife took the manuscript out of his hands and dramatically improved and reorganized it. But it does look like the Russians are pulling back some troops from around Kiev. And that would be consistent with what the Russians say they are doing, which is focusing in the near term on Donetsk and Luhansk where they have a greater prospect of success than they had in Kiev. And they could well be trying to trap the Ukrainian troops that are in the eastern and southern part of the country to destroy the interior lines of communication for Ukraine and create two separate areas of fighting. But none of that should obscure the fact that the Russians are failing miserably at this and failing miserably at the tasks of basic military proficiency. They can't conduct combined arms operations. They can't supply troops at the speed troops are moving. They are experiencing not just desertions and even defections, but there are either even suggestions Russian troops are killing their commanders. And the stalwart work of Ukrainian defense forces, Ukrainian civil defense forces, and the resilience of Ukrainian society has been quite extraordinary. The last thing I'll say is that we shouldn't avert our eyes from the genuine barbarity of what the Russians are doing. 5,000 civilians dead in Mariupol, the Ukrainian troops refusing to depart the city while people are still there are probably going to be exterminated by the Russians. Their inability to conduct an actual military operation has led them to bombarding civilian targets. And in particular, that signature Russian military move, bombing hospitals. So the Ukrainians, I think, have the strength to win this but it's really horrible. And the rest of us are letting Ukraine fight alone. And just as we let Kosovars fight alone and Bosniaks and Croats fight alone for a very long time. So I am itchy at the moment about the Biden administration 
talking about how great we're doing because I feel like it's disrespectful to the Ukrainians who are dying while we're assisting at the margins. We let the Brits fight alone for a long time too, right? September 1939 to December 1941. So, Rosa, when you look at all the the fog that is coming out of Ukraine, what do you take away? What is what is your view at the moment of the way you think things are unfolding? It's really extraordinary, I think, how poorly the Russians are doing. Another thing that is really extraordinary is the Russians, the Russians have been very smart, at least in what they write and in the past about what they do, about recognizing that gray zone warfare is probably the way to go and that conventional military action is likely to be bloody and inconclusive and embarrassing and that focusing on you know financial warfare, cyber war, et cetera, information war may be more effective. They've been super smart about that in the past. And yet, weirdly, when it comes to Ukraine, and we all thought, I certainly thought that they would continue with that gray zone warfare and not resort to conventional military force, except on the margins. But instead, they seem to have gone, you know, all in on, in some ways, 19th century military strategy. You know, they're not even using encrypted communications consistently. And they seem to have completely abandoned all that gray zone warfare stuff, which, which I find really weird. And I don't know what it means. One thing it could mean, obviously, is that the people who are making the decisions in Ukraine are not the architects of Russian military theory. Uh, it's a different set of people. And, and some of those generals like Gerasimov have been completely shut out. Um, I'd be curious to know if Corey and Ed knew, David, have any, any thoughts on what's going on there. I, I think my other two sort of reactions, one is I'm still kind of flabbergasted by the recklessness. We don't know for a fact that they're actually targeting civilian areas, but at a minimum, they are being extraordinarily reckless and indifferent to whether they are hitting civilian areas. And I still find that kind of stunning, even though I shouldn't, given Syria, given Chechnya, it's completely consistent with their past practice. And yet one always, there's there's some tiny little Steven Pinker inside everybody's head, even mine, that keeps wanting to think that, you know, things are just getting better and better and the moral arc of the universe is, you know, arcing away happily. And it's always, uh, even though I know better, kind of shocking to see, nope, not not true. My final thought, and this is something that Corey has written about, uh, and, I, and I had a very similar reaction, is that it's not necessarily a good thing for us or for the Ukrainians that Russia's doing so badly. Uh, and, you know, as Corey, uh, let Corey articulate her own argument, because she'll do it far better than I would, but a failing military in some ways is very dangerous military because they become more desperate, more brutal. The exit, the off-ramps become more complicated and more difficult. And I do worry about that a lot. I worry about, I worry about what a desperate Putin and a whole lot of desperate conscripts running around Ukraine are likely to do. Okay, so I'd like to get Ed's take on on where he thinks things are now. Then we're going to go back, and that'll give you a chance to respond to that, Corey. And we'll go back and also look at what we see as medium-term and longer-term implications of what's going on now. But Ed, I've noticed in your Twitter feed, you have flagged some of these signs of potential opportunity, but you've also been in your columns kind of skeptical of it. So how do you reconcile the two? I'd go with uh, the Peter Porantz famous book title, um, 
nothing is true, everything is possible. And, you know, with the general precept that diplomacy is war by other means and vice versa. And so deep skepticism as to anything that the Russians might be prepared to offer their Ukrainian counterparts in these talks in Turkey. And deep skepticism is to even if the Ukrainians accept something interim as to whether it will be seen as anything more than a pause in Putin's brain uh, and anything more than a, a regrouping moment whilst he plans the next stage, because it's very clear that you know, his larger aims have been consistent for many, many years. And I don't believe that the last five weeks of humiliation on the conventional battlefield are going to change Putin's mind one jot. So we're going to be entering, a, 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 in a way, a kind of gray zone in terms of whether this is war or diplomacy, when they're two sides of the same coin. And what I fear is that this will be, in just the same way, the shocking overtness and ambition and callousness of what happened after February the 24th unified us. I fear that the more murky, ambivalent sort of steps that we're going to be probably seeing in the coming days and weeks are going to lead to a sort of loosening of, of the Western alliance and an enhancing of some of the differences that are there between us. And the biggest difference is really between the Poland-Baltic state and to some extent British position, joint expeditionary force position, which is more hawkish, and you know the German-French one, which is much more enthusiastic about talks. And Macron has, of course, talked to Putin more than anybody else. So I fear that a relaxation, that, that a slight sort of coming off the boil of the situation on the ground in Ukraine will lead to a relaxing, or at least there's a danger it'll lead to a relaxation of European and, well, transatlantic unity on this question. But bottom line is, I really don't know. And, and you know, everything is possible. Nothing's true. Maury, I'm going to say something now which will inflame many of our listeners, which is why I'm not saying it on Twitter, because I, if it's too annoying to begin, we hear back from them. But here, I don't have to hear back from them. And that is that Macron is turning out to be the Barack Obama of Europe. Explain what I mean. <laughs> uh, let's see. <laughs> supreme confidence that you're the smartest person in the room and condescending to everyone else's ability or appreciation of a particular problem? I think if Barack Obama were president of the United States right now, the U.S. position would be the French position. Oh, interesting. Say more, David. Well, I just think, you know, Macron is like, let's have a solution. Let's take any solution. I'll take, you know, I don't want to have this conflict. You know, I'll find a way out. I'm talking to Putin. Putin is saying this, you know, it, it just echoes to me, you know, the, the vibe that I was getting out of the Obama administration around Crimea. Interesting. A very unflattering reflection on the president. But you make a good case, David. <laughs> and I'd, I'd add in, I mean, this is how Obama treated the Tea Party, which is like, OK, you're nuts, but let's reasonable people can find a reasonable solution and then agrees to the Bowles-Simpson plan, which is conceding half of what the Tea Party were completely monstrously demanding. So I, I, I think he, he had form in terms of other horizons of negotiation. I have a hard time transporting myself back to Crimea, 
But I do have two other Obama data points, namely the ease with which he declared the Syria red line and then the agonized talking himself out of it, which had terrible consequences for Syrians and advantageous ones for Russians, but also candidate Obama's reaction to Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008, which I only remember because I was working on the McCain campaign at the time. And it took three or four days before Mike McFall was able to get his hands around the microphone and clarify what the what would get candidate Obama out of hot water in terms of, well, you know, both of them have some some legitimate points here. Sort of reminds me of President Obama saying that the countries of the Gulf really need to, they and Iran both have interests in the Middle East. It's both true and unhelpful to the people you're trying to help. And I think that for me is the comparison to President Macron. It feels a lot more like it's about President Macron than it's about helping Ukrainians or protecting Ukrainians. Yeah. I mean, you know, today, President Macron apparently relayed that he spoke to Putin. And um, if I were Macron, I wouldn't keep speaking to Putin because every time he speaks to Putin, Putin lies to him and then he buys it and then he says it publicly. And then it turns out that Putin was lying to him. But today, Macron saw it within his Jupiterian wisdom. Jupiterian wisdom, also that, that, you know, that he would relay that Putin said that, uh, you know, the only way that there will be a solution in Mariupol is if the nationalists, what Putin called nationalists, people defending their own country, gave up. And so, you know, what Macron is like, you know, why is he serving as the messenger for Putin? Since, Rosa, you're the only person here who's a member of the Obama administration, you may defend it against my calumny. I mean, I, I do think that that's one of the major criticisms that can be leveled against the Obama administration was that there was always a little bit of this, a little bit of that, not quite enough of anything. You know, I mean, it was always so ambivalent that it was very, and, and, and I think, you know, I, 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 I empathize with Obama, you know, super smart guy prone to seeing all the complexities, all the painful complexities of the world, which as, as Corey said, you know, they're there. It's, it's right. It's also sort of not necessarily helpful when you get so mired in the complexities that you can't really figure out any decisive action one way or the other. So, so I don't, I don't think that is unfair at all. I, you know, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking if anybody here has ever been through mediation sessions or learned anything about mediation, one of the things that they always say about mediation is that it's useful if both parties have a good faith desire to resolve a problem. It's completely useless if one party has no interest in doing anything except burning it all down, because all that will happen then is that the, you know, the reasonable party will make concession after concession. And things won't go anywhere uh, except except downhill. And I feel like that is certainly the 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 McCall situation right now. You know, he he keeps thinking he's going to, you know, get something reasonable, and he doesn't, and he won't. Putin must be giggling to himself about this at this point. Do you really think Putin giggles? He looks like a giggler to me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think after all the Botox, he actually has the ability to control his facial muscles adequately to do Yeah, so. he can't even <laughs> sneer. He can't even <laughs> sneer. 
his face is just frozen. Yeah, no, like, it's that like, kind of Botox, that Kardashian Botox mask that he's got. His face has been frozen like that since he was a toddler. He's sort of a victim. You know how your mom says, don't make that face, it'll stick that way. I think he, you know, he got this sort of uh, cold stare stuck on his face at a very early age, and it's it just stuck that way. Well, that's quite possible. By the way, your description of the sort of marriage counselor dynamic with one party wanting to burn it down and the other one trying to be reasonable all the time sounds a lot like American politics, too. People may use it in a variety of ways. But Ed, you know, one of the things that I think is underplayed here is how un-Obama-like Biden is being. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a, very, a very, very good point. I just have to add, having been through a divorce that involves some mediation, I'm really glad Macron wasn't the mediator. So uh, that's just my gratuitous uh, you know, personalization of the, of the very eloquent point Rosa just made. Biden is, you know, he, he always talks about getting his Irish up. He's not afraid to sort of have the blood coursing through his veins. And again, I understand why, for many reasons, Obama felt the need for emotional restraint, not least his color. And I also understand in 2008, in the context of Iraq, and um, American overenthusiasm. Why, when McCain says we're all Georgians now, Obama recoils from that. I mean, it was it was good politics at the time, but Biden's clearly got passion and unafraid to convey that passion and even to walk it back when all the people around him are walking it back for him. I don't find that particularly worrying. I, I mean, I, I think you know Putin must know that Biden would like him to go and that everybody else, even Macron, would probably like him to go. And that when he spoke out of turn, that's Biden, that this didn't suddenly become a NATO war aim. So uh, it's questionable, you know, whether the speech in Warsaw mightn't have had a bigger impact, though, if, if Biden hadn't done that ad lib, because that speech, whether you agree with it or not, is a potentially very important speech in Biden's presidency. And in this sort of age, new age of the revenge of geopolitics, in which he's declared, rightly or wrongly, uh, this kind of pretty stark autocracy versus democracy dividing line, not quite Reagan-esque, Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker language, but it's pretty clear. And that's, he's nailed that to the mast. And I think, you know, before February the 24th and before that speech in Warsaw, there was some debate about whether it had been a mistake to hold the democracy summit, which was only last December. It wasn't long ago. I still think it was a mistake. I remember India was part of it. Being a democracy doesn't necessarily decide what your stance is on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Or on democracy, for that matter. Or on democracy, yeah, in India's case. So, but there's no doubt about it. Biden is a very, very different character to Obama. And I'm very glad it is. Biden and not Obama, who's president in this crisis. Very glad. Yeah, no, no, me as well. You know, on this point of this historic speech, but, you know, Corey, I, I think it was kind of historic in the sense that, you know, he was defining this dividing line in the new Europe in much the same way that Churchill did in Fulton, Missouri. Um, and I think the significance of the speech was as much for what comes after this war in Ukraine as, as for the outcome of that war. 
needless to say, it got caught up in a you know media hubbub over a few words. And that carried through to the president's press conference yesterday. And they were so eager to play the game of gotcha that, you know, they missed the point of the press conference, which was the budget. And a central element of that budget is spending on security. And, you know, in some respects, this budget is going to be the first Cold War to, you know, characterize it how you will budget that we've got. But it seems to me that the two possibilities will be Biden will get what he asks for or more. You know, that we we are in a new stance. And I'm wondering how you think about that. So I think that's right, David, but partly because Biden didn't ask for nearly enough. The administration is trumpeting a 4% increase in defense spending. That's not in real terms. That's in nominal terms. The budget is built on a 2.5% inflation figure, and inflation's running about 7.5% right now. So in real terms, it's actually a cut in defense spending. I'm celebrating the 14% increase in State Department spending, but again, those are nominal terms. So in real terms, it's about a 7% increase in State Department funding and a decrease in defense spending. Moreover, the strategy that the Biden administration is advocating expands the aperture of what is appropriate military spending to include climate change, to include global health. Those are good things, but they're not in particular defense things. And so, you know, last year, Congress plussed up the Biden budget request by $23 billion. My bingo card has them plussing it up by $50 billion this year. What do you, what do you think of this, Rosa? Because, I, you know, we are seemingly entering a new period of heightened tension, and that's going to translate, I have to translate, I suspect, into more money for defense and, one hopes, for the State Department. Uh, are we? trending in the right direction or not? Nothing is trending in the right direction. I mean, I mean, I, I agree with Corey's analysis. I, th- I think that it, we will obviously be increasing spending on defense. I don't, I don't see that there's any alternative right now, given what's going on in the world, uh, which is very scary. I was going to say, uh, you know, every day there's not a nuclear war is kind of a good day at the moment. But I think that 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 I suspect that's on a pillow in your living room, isn't it, Rosie? Absolutely. But I think that the the prospect of both conventional warfare spreading throughout more of Europe, the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons, the you know the unimaginable becoming imaginable again, all of those things, of course, are going to drive Congress to say whatever. What what can we throw at this? That sometimes means that they throw money at stupid stuff, but they're definitely going to be throwing money around for a while. I agree with you that it's sort of a shame uh, that Biden's final off-the-cuff comments in Warsaw took center stage because it it, it sort of upstaged everything else uh, that he was talking about. But the good news, David, is that now that Will Smith has slapped Chris Rock, that has completely pushed the Biden remarks off the front pages as, as, as another major world crisis. Yeah, that's what I plan to talk about in the remaining third of the show, right after we take our break, is your opinions on on Chris Rock and Will Smith and the geopolitical implications. 
That's actually not true, but you won't find out what we're going to talk about in the remaining third unless you're a member. So go become a member and then you can hear the whole broadcast. And if if you're not and you're just going to go away, well, goodbye. And we're about to have a really good conversation without you. And with that, we'll take a brief break and we'll be back in a moment. So we're back. And Ed, we were talking about budgets and you know, it's interesting to hear the range um, that, that Corey was talking about and, and Rose's perspectives. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, the Germans said they were going to increase their defense spending from 1.5% of their GDP to 2.2 or something like that. So that suggests they're going to, you know, increase their defense spending by 40%, I, you know, by some very substantial num- number. And in fact, move to the point that they're actually spending more Germany alone than Russia spends on defense. Is this, do you think, going to be something that we see across Europe, across the alliance? I would have thought the trend is going to be up. Corey will know better than than me just what an inefficient base Germany is starting from. I mean, this is not considered to be even considering the size of Germany's economy a very kinetic or menacing military, to put it mildly, the German military. And for most of modern history, that's been a great reassurance. Now that we trust the Germans and want them to be more active partners, they're going to have to do more than just increase defense spending. They're going to have to reorient their military organization and how they spend their defense money. But as I say, I think Corey is, is better informed on this. Clearly, there's going to be an increase in defense spending across across most of Europe, not just in NATO members, but we're seeing it already in non and potentially soon to be NATO members like Finland. I believe that if the F-35 order that Finland just made were replicated per capita by Germany, then Germany would be ordering 900 F-35s, which is obviously not something even its defense budget increase could afford. So you're going to see a particularly large increase in military buildup the further east you go in Europe. From a purely economic and analytical point of view, this will be a good countervailing cyclical force to some of the downsides to this decoupling from Russia, which I fully expect to last and I fully expect there to be, at some speed or other, a shift away from Russian energy. Energy is, of course, a dimension of security. And therefore, there will be a Keynesian sort of plus as well to this military spending. Overall, though, I share Rose's sort of view. Even if I don't think you know, we should be ignoring this, we should be increasing our defense budgets. I think it's a reflection of just how unstable, uncertain, and dangerous this world is. And and that's not going to go away anytime soon. Doesn't seem to be, but as we sort of look out to the longer term, and, and that's kind of what I want to focus here on the last few minutes, that's what I took away from Biden's speech. That's what I've taken away from the past month. That we've entered a new era and that NATO is going to be much more focused on strength capabilities, unity, and a sense that this Russian threat will remain, regardless of the outcome in Ukraine, for as long as Putin is in power. In the best of all possible worlds, Corey, 
What does that mean we should be investing in? What should we be spending on for this kind of new era? So I think it's important not to overcorrect in Europe, which I think the rushed deployment of American ground forces to Poland, Bulgaria, Romania matters in the moment, but those kinds of deployments tend to be sticky. And a Russia that can be fought to a standstill by the Ukrainian military, which is a quarter of its size, is a military Poland could defeat, is a military the Baltic states could defeat. And so we shouldn't become so concerned. And the Russian military is going to struggle to reconstitute itself because they don't have access to international capital. They don't have the ability to sell or buy goods. And so we are looking at a dramatically shrunken geostrategic Russia after this. That may not make it any less a threat to us, but it probably doesn't mean we need to be bristling at NATO's eastern border once this passes and allies feel reassured. What we should be buying is a 500-ship navy because we still have the problem of China burgeoning in ambition and power in the Pacific, which is a maritime theater. And I would love to see the Biden administration be able to orchestrate America's friends and allies in the Pacific in a similar way. It is, of course, much harder to do in the Pacific. You don't have the structures and the institutions that facilitate it in Europe. But I, I think mostly what we should be buying, we should be buying for managing war in the Pacific, not managing war in Europe. Rosa? Corey makes a good point. Russia is going to be squeezed. It's not going to have a lot of resources. It may remain a threat. It doesn't seem like the Russian ground forces are the kind of threat we may have thought they were. I saw something today that said that 75% of the Russian military was deployed towards these goals in Ukraine, which they haven't achieved. It does suggest to me that if that's the case, that the principal Russian threat is the, is the nuclear threat. And how should we address that? Best case scenario here is that, you know, there's some sort of coup against Putin because his own inner circle concludes that he's destroying their country. And even their fear of him uh, becomes over, becomes overwhelmed by their fear of the complete collapse of Russia. That would be the best case scenario. And then we have a slightly less irresponsible group of people come into power. I don't think there's I don't think there's any best case in which we actually get Russian democracy uh, in a meaningful way rapidly. Um, but I think we I think best case is we get a less bad, less crazy, less reckless Russian leadership. But the worst case is that essentially Russia becomes like North Korea. Right. I mean, none of us are worried that the North Korean army is going to, you know, swarm, swarm into ships and land in the US and take over territory or something like that, you know, that the reason that North Korea is is a threat is because of nuclear weapons. That's essentially the only reason. The conventional threat is is not non-existent, but it's certainly it's certainly more than manageable by well-trained militaries such as South Korea's with the many allies that they have. Um, but 
the scary possibility is that just going into the future for potentially a very long period to come that that Russia and like Iran to some degree, like North Korea, just becomes that wild card in, in international relations where you just never quite know what they're going to do. And you're always worrying that it could be something awful. And you tensions go up and they go down and they go up and they go down. I mean, I think that's entirely possible. And as we know, when we think about Iran, we think about North Korea, it's easy to look at those situations and and kind of go, oh, well, you know, every now and then we get hysterical about it. Nothing bad ever happens. So nothing bad ever will happen. But I think that's obviously a mistake with regard to those countries. It will be a mistake with regard to Russia. The fact that nothing catastrophic has happened yet never, unfortunately, means that it couldn't happen the next time. That's also on my pillow. Yeah, that's a that's a must be a very large pillow. But um, it does sort of echo the famous line from, uh, well, you mentioned Bum Klaswitz earlier. I, I mentioned also the famous military doctrine from the Princess Bride, which is, you know, never fight a land war in Asia. But it, it may be that for our time, we extend that a little bit, because given the recent results of lots of land wars, the cheaper, more dangerous path for a lot of countries is to have the ability to blow everything up, as opposed to, you know, fighting for something that may be very hard to achieve. Let me quickly, in the last uh, few moments we've got here, Ed, change this, the, the course of the discussion to another one of the longer-term issues. I was speaking to a very senior U.S. government official the other day, and they said that the rebuilding of Ukraine will probably be the most expensive rebuilding job that the world has faced since World War II. I saw a Ukrainian estimate, and it was a completely made-up estimate of a Ukrainian minister that it would cost $575 billion. The U.S. government believes it will cost hundreds of billions of dollars. There is in this, uh, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. You know, how do you get Russia to pay some of it? Can you? Does the West pay for it? What does the get West get in return for the investment? Are you investing all of this money in an EU member state? Now, there are some other benefits to it, because I think it seems likely that a ceasefire will involve Ukraine to, uh, you know, probably have to accept not being in NATO. But if you have Ukraine covered with Western companies rebuilding it for years and years to come, that may act as a kind of a shield against Russian aggression. What do you think of this issue, Ed, in the last couple of minutes we've got? Now is clearly emotionally not the time where people are ready to discuss what a settlement with Russia would look like. But we do need to know what model to avoid. And Versailles is the model to avoid. Versailles, where Germany is basically shackled to reparations in perpetuity, is what laid the seeds for a far worse Germany down the line. The model, of course, that people go to is the one Kissinger or has said celebrated 1815, in which the concert of powers establishes a new, a, a, a new Europe. Uh, or a new balance of power in Europe, in which France was, of course, patched in, uh, but it had to be post-Napoleon France. It clearly couldn't have been done with a France still run by Napoleon. So this is going to be a huge dilemma, and whatever decision we come to in terms of what the best reparations schedule is, is, is not going to be figured out with Putin. So I think that 
it's going to be very, very hard to make progress on that. We could, of course, just keep their frozen central bank reserves. And we've got several hundred billion dollars of those, as we did, I think, wrongly with Afghanistan, where we're, we're distributing half of them to victims of 9-11. We could then really scare the rest of the world away from the dollar by, without Russia's compliance, essentially expropriating its central bank reserves. That wouldn't be wise. We could, of course, unilaterally go ahead and rebuild it, but that would be on our tab. And that would be unjust. It's better than not rebuilding Ukraine, but it's got to be a settlement that involves Russia. And therefore, we get back to that sort of terrible dilemma is, can we really make any kinds of deals with Putin that we believe will stick? And would Putin even begin to concede the premise of reparations that Russia owes Ukraine? Um, I'm afraid I don't have the answer to those questions. They're hard questions, but the reality is this. It is a question that will require an answer whether we have one or not. Not rebuilding Ukraine, not spending the hundreds of billions of dollars will not be an acceptable option because it creates a security void also. So we will have to tackle all of these things. We will not be able to tackle any of them in the 45 minutes we have for each of these podcasts. But I think we've covered a lot of ground here and uh, done so very well, thanks to Corey and Ed and Rosa, and uh, we will continue to try to do well on these issues in the podcast to come. On, on this coming Thursday's podcast, by the way, we're going to do something really radical here. We're not going to talk about Ukraine. We're going to talk about American politics, but we will come back to focusing on this primarily in many uh, different ways over the, the next days and weeks, because this is still the greatest geopolitical story of the moment. So hope to join you then. If you want to find out what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And in the meantime, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye.